When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just a quick announcement before we begin this week's episode. Words to that effect is in the running for the podcast awards, and this is the second last day to vote. So if you like the show, maybe you could do me a small favor and go to podcastawards.com and vote. Just select words to that effect in the drop-down list in the arts category. And it's in the people's choice category as well, so you can vote for it there too. It'll take you three minutes tops, and it's at podcastawards.com, and I would really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. The book is always better than the film, or so they say. But there are obviously quite a few problems with this, as there tends to be with any sweeping generalization. For some, the book is always better than the film because books are just better than films, which is something I would mostly agree with. Fiction creates and draws us into a world entirely inside our own imagination. At its best, fiction is far more immersive and engaging than a film can ever be. But of course, there are plenty of truly fantastic films adapted from utterly mediocre books. However, it's not a competition, even if it can sometimes seem that way. Literature and film are two completely different forms of creative expression, two wholly different ways of telling a story. But the reason they tend to get placed in opposition so often is precisely because of this. They are two different ways of telling a story, two different ways to reach an audience, and ultimately, two different ways to make money from the same story. Film producers are constantly looking to fiction for great stories, or better yet, for stories with built-in fan bases. And it's not one-way traffic either. Successful films and TV shows are routinely repackaged as novelizations or extended with the further fictional adventures of popular characters. Which got me thinking about this whole area. How exactly does a book become a film or a TV show? What makes one novel suitable for adaptation and not another? And how do you go about adapting it? How many times have you read a great novel and thought, how has this author's work never been made into a film? And what about the other way around? Novelizations and book spin-offs? Where do they fit into all of this? Well, the book-to-film process is well-established and has a number of steps. First, obviously, an author publishes a book. Then somebody would see it that was in the decision-making power to turn it into a film and say, yes, this, that, that's potentially a very good, a very good idea for a film. Paul Fitzsimons, writer, film producer and script consultant. They will go to either the publisher or the writer's agent and say, I want to buy the option for that, for that book, which is a small amount of money. You know, it, it might, for a writer, it might be quite large. It might be, um, depends on the book and depends on how crazy the, the producer is, but it could be 10 grand, it could be 100 grand. Um, and the option basically is that, they're, that they want to uh, they want to own the rights to, to the book for filmmaking so that no one else can, can, uh, can, do, can use it um, but they don't own the actual rights to, to make the film so what they're doing is they're buying the option for it so they can go and possibly hire a screenwriter um, not, and it won't be the author it, it 90% of the time will not be the novel, unless the novelist is J.K. Rowling who has pulling power of her own that, that she can make demands. So they would then go and they'll probably get a higher screenwriter 
um, to write a couple of drafts of it and then they'll shop around and they'll try to get um, to try, to try and get somebody to, to actually buy it or to produce it and get get it going and at that point if they aren't able to sell it uh, the option will invariably run out after a year or two years depending on the agreement uh, sometimes in six months um, and the rights will then revert back to the writer to the to the author and they can then start the process again or they can you know, they, they, don't own, they, they don't own the film rights. Um, alternatively, what will happen is they will buy the, the producer, um, or it might be a studio at that stage, um, Universal or Fox or something like that, will buy the rights to it. And that's a, significant, a significantly larger amount of money. And that's basically the, the studio saying, yes, we are going to make this movie, or we are now going to attempt to make this movie. And it'll go into more development stages. And then, and then, it's, then it's not a book anymore. Then it's a movie. And that's the point where things can get a bit problematic. For fans of the original novel, for filmgoers, and for the novelist, the, the area that some no- novelists struggle with is that is the loss of power. Is that they they see their book being changed, and and they, I think what novelists need, need to realize is that their book's not being changed. Their book is still there. The book is still there. It's on everyone's shelf. It's still in the bookshop. It's still, it's still, you can still go and buy it. This is a this is a movie based on your book. Someone else is writing it. Um, you've given them permission for a significant amount of money, but it's then their property from a from a movie-making point of view, and you have to let go. You can't say, well, this is not how, you know, I, I don't see Ryan Gosling playing that part. But you, know, well, you, didn't, you didn't write that part for a movie, you wrote it as a book. So the author of the original novel has to kind of let go and say, I, I, I've sold this to you now, you now own it, and the movie's going to be what the movie's going to be. And it's not just hard for authors to let go, it's hard for readers too. That's not how I imagined the protagonist looked. What happened to that hilarious subplot? Why is it not set in the same country? We use words like a faithful adaptation, and it can feel like a director has cheated us, has betrayed us when the film doesn't look or feel like we think it should. But the problem, ultimately, is that a film is not a book. An adaptation is not really the film of the book. It is, as Paul says, a film based on a book. There are so many more practical considerations when making a film. Maybe that protagonist doesn't look like you imagined her, but the actress playing her is a rising star and will draw a large audience. That hilarious subplot probably just made the film too long. And the country has changed, well, maybe shooting on location in Syria just wasn't that easy. That's not to say there aren't often other inexcusable changes. Let's make the main character white. Let's take out those critical political parts so it won't offend anyone. You know the idea. Ultimately, though, in making any adaptation, there are decisions to make, and there are good and bad adaptations. I imagine you can think of lots of examples where the film version of a book you loved was a complete disaster, or maybe where an average book was transformed into a masterpiece on screen. Paul Fitzsimons has plenty of experience on both the novel and screenwriting side of things. I've been writing for about uh, 15 years. Uh, started off writing novels. Um, I've won novel that I wrote, uh, it's just come out there now about two months ago. So I, um, I've been writing uh, other novels. I wrote uh, some screenplays, worked on television, worked on Fair City, Ortiz, uh, primetime uh, d- daily drama. Um, and in 2014, I was commissioned to write a feature film um, for uh, producer-director Damien O'Callaghan um, in, from Killarney. Um, so I wrote that with him uh, went to Killarney made the film with him produced it my first time on a live movie set um, uh, which was interesting and very very educational for me um, and a bit of fun as well can be uh, and that film came out the film's called The Gift 
and that was released in 2000, what are we now, 2017. The Gift was in cinemas last year and is now available on Amazon Prime. And Paul's book, which has just been published, is a crime thriller called Burning Matches and is also available on Amazon. And I'll put links to all the stuff mentioned on the Words That Affect website. Burning Matches is a a crime detective procedural um, set in Dublin. Um, and it's about a uh, guard detective who has to investigate his own partner after she kills her boyfriend. And he finds that not, it's not quite so cut and dry, that there's no real innocent party here. The um, the victim, the boyfriend, certainly wasn't innocent. The uh, partner who has killed him may not necessarily have been 100% innocent. And her friends who are who are very much involved in the relationship as well. Burning Matches is currently being made into a film, and Paul is working on the screenplay himself, something he admits is somewhat unusual. Novelists tend not to adapt their own work. So he has a quite unique insight into the two sides of the process, novel and screenplay, and they're very different art forms with very different considerations. You have a lot more freedom, in a way, as a novelist. You can... You can write to the structure that you want, and um, there's a, there's a lot more fluidity in, in structure in novels. Whereas, for ma- particularly for mainstream cinema, um, but also for independent cinema as well, you you kind of have to stick to a lot of rules. There's a lot of rules in screenwriting, such as formatting. A screenwriter, no matter what stage you're at in your career, has to be formatted in a very specific way. Um, which something like that will be will be completely alien to a novelist. And above all, writing a novel is a relatively solitary pursuit. Films are huge collaborative efforts, and the screenplay is not just the work of one person. You write a screenplay, it goes to your editor, then it comes back, then it goes to your producer, then it goes to your director, then it goes to your cast, then it goes to all your crew, then it goes on to, on to, on to the set. And every time it goes on to one of these new plugs, it gets changed. It gets changed up to the point, I was doing script rewrites every night in, on The Gift. I wasn't, part, I wasn't supposed to be there. I was supposed to be there as a producer, but the fact that I was there as the writer meant it was easier for me that, that I would get, I'd go off uh, set at the end of any, every every production day and I would go home back to my hotel room and I'd rewrite scenes because we'd be having conversations constantly and you're constantly adapt, or constantly changing, constantly collaborating with everyone. And, and don't get me wrong, they're brilliant collaborations. Actors are fantastic collaborators. It's their job. Lots of these considerations apply when working the other way too, when taking something from the screen and creating a novel which is precisely what author Carmel Harrington recently did with the ITV television series Cold Feet. Um, I'm Carmel Harrington and I write novels. I write commercial fiction. I'm published with HarperCollins and my books in the main are emotional family dramas. They're usually issue driven. Um, At the centre of them, though, they are about real people doing their best to lead the best life that they can with the usual curveballs that are thrown at us along the way. The, the last couple of books I've written were The Woman at 72 Derry Lane, um, which was a um, Sunday Times bestseller and also an Amazon bestseller, and Cold Feet the Lost Years, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And my next book comes out in October in trade paperback in Ireland, and it's called A Thousand Roads Home. Cold Feet, if you don't know it, was a comedy drama series which originally ran from 1998 to 2003. It ended after five seasons, but then in 2016 it was revived, and Series 6 picked up in real time with all the characters 13 years later. He once accused me of behaving as though fatherhood ends with conception. Doesn't even end in divorce. Marge, it isn't something you just rush in, Says the man whose last one lasted over six weeks. Are you using drugs? No! It was in my purse! I wasn't in your purse! So there was a big gap in the timeline, and naturally a lot of fans wanted to know what happened. 
how did the characters get from where they were in 2003 to where they are now? Which is where Carmel and Cold Feet, The Lost Years, comes in. What happened was that my agent, I'm with the James Grant Group in the UK, who um, they have a lot of the ITV crew in their stable. So they would have everything from like, say, Anton Deck and Philip and Holly, and they would do a lot of the ITV kind of gang there. And um, they had heard about this search for an author to write the standalone novel um, for Cold Feet. And my agent just thought that I would be perfect for it. So she rang me up out of the blue and just said to me one afternoon, you know, are you a fan of Cold Feet? And I thought, random question, but yeah, I was, um, always enjoyed it. And she told me about this. So basically what happened was that um, the publisher, Hodder and Stoughton, uh, and they're not my publisher, so I, I you know, had never worked with them before, but it was actually somebody in-house in Hodder who was a Cold Feet fan. And as a fan, she kind of had always wondered what had happened in those missing 13 years. And so she went to, to the powers that be in Hodder and said, look, I've got this idea. They approached ITV and ITV thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. And then ITV approached Mike Bullen, who is the creator of Cold Feet and also the writer. He writes all the scripts. And Mike agreed to it um, in theory, um, but just said he didn't have time to write the novel as he was busy writing series seven. Um, but what he said was that if you can find an author and I can approve them, um, we'll take it from there. So it kind of was a little bit like, it was a bit of an audition procedure then because when in theory I had agreed that I would like to do it, um, they sent over one of my books over to, um, you know, the team in Hodder, the publisher initially. Um, and then they shortlisted a number of authors that they felt had the right voice that could actually capture um, the tone of the series. And I was asked to write 4,000 words. So I um, wrote my 4,000 words and um, thankfully it made it to a shortlist that landed on the desk of, there were a team, a creative team from ITV and also Cold Feet, some of the producers, and Mike Bullen himself. And they read a number of of these sample um, chapters. And mine was the one that was voted the best. And I got it. I got the gig. Couldn't believe it. You could have blown me over with a feather. Writing a book of this type is quite a challenge. As an author, you have to keep a lot of people happy. Fans of your own regular novels, fans of the TV show itself, and of course the writer whose characters you're working with. For me, it was slightly different because for most novelizations, and if you look at them, you know, the, the ones, the most famous of them, and a lot of the science fiction um, TV shows would have novelizations from like, say, Doctor Who, and even down to some of the, the crime series like CSI, they, there's loads of novelizations of those. Um, and a lot of those would have, you know, this huge devout cult, cult following. And their novelizations exactly of the actual script of the show. What I was doing was quite different. Um, I was writing original material using the characters from the show. So it was slightly different. So, so my premise was, was different. I, you know, I had no script to kind of work with. I just picked up where the show ended in 2003 and I had to make sure that everything was you know, in place so that when the show picked up again in 2016, anything that I had written hadn't damaged the characters or the storyline and that it was all, you know, it all made sense. So, but it was all original content, if you like. So there were, it, it was slightly different in that sense. And I actually think that was better for me. That, w that made the actual um, challenge 
something that I wanted to get my, you know, I wanted to kind of get stuck into. And I'm not so sure I would have done it if it had to, had to been a novelization of an actual script. I don't know if that would have been my bag or not. There's a long history of media tie-ins and adaptation. Increasingly, though, there's a move away from more straightforward retellings or spin-offs to what's been called transmedia storytelling, where there are multiple parts to a story all being told in parallel in different media. So you might have a film where a minor character in the film is the protagonist of a comic book or a computer game, and those stories run alongside each other. Or maybe a fictional character in a book or film has a real-life Twitter account and their tweets provide more of the story. Transmedia storytelling can be really innovative, as well as commercially savvy. It makes sense that publishers and and TV um, shows and movies, they exploit this and they look at ways, because anything that gets loyalty and buys in, um, you know, interaction with readers, that they, you know, it's making them um, stick with the show. Because there's so many, you know, with the whole thing of Netflix and Amazon Prime, there are so many new shows out there constantly. And you want, you, you want your fan base to stay loyal. So I get how this makes sense for them. Um, and I think for kids as well, I can see how it, you know, it's a huge deal. And even down to like, look at the likes of say, say Toy Story. I'm thinking of, I've got young children. I have a six and an eight-year-old. And my son is a huge Toy Story fan. And we bought all of the Toy Story books. And they're basically novelizations, picture book ones, but that's what they are. And because he finished seeing the movies and it's not enough for him, he wants to stay close. So you buy the stuffed toy. So you have your little stuffed toy of Woody and you have Buzz Lightyear and you do all that. But then you buy the book and you can read the book and it continues that that love affair and that connection. So I can see how it makes sense and I can see why people do it. And and certainly um, I think the, the people who read Cold Feet the Lost Years in the main were those huge, you know, big Cold Feet fans of the TV show. And of course it makes business sense. Publishers are commercial enterprises. So are TV and film studios and games manufacturers and everyone else involved. Sometimes though it can get a little odd. Obviously, great expectations. We all know great expectations. There was a movie of great expectations, and they actually did a novelization of the movie. So, okay. you know, so it started off as great expectations, the, the you know the book obviously, and then there was an, and it was actually said on the cover of the novelization. It says, um, it says novelization by Deborah Cheel, based on the novel by Charles Dickens, based on the motion picture written by Mitch Glazer. And I thought, oh my goodness, that how crazy is that? <laughs> that there's a novelization of a movie of a one of the classics of our time. The album of the soundtrack of the trailer of the film of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But let's return to adaptation for a minute. What exactly do you need? Well, certain books do lend themselves to adaptation more readily than others. If a novel is a sprawling 800-page fantasy epic, it's probably not going to get made into a film, unless a major studio with a few hundred million dollars stumbles across it. Although, having said that, a novel like that might be prime material for a TV series. Just look at the success of Game of Thrones. In terms of film genre, crime and comedy tend to lend themselves particularly readily to adaptation. As a screenplay is so much shorter than your average novel, a book which can be paired back to a set of key moments with the film built around these is ideal. It's always going to be very subjective, but there are some standout examples of films which worked and others which just haven't. Fight Club is fantastic as an adaptation. It made a brilliant film. You know, there, there, there was no lack of quality from the point of view of, of uh, 
what what was put into the book and what went into the film. I mean, it, in in a way, one of the one of the rules I say about about adaptation is try and avoid voiceover to get your to get your characters' thoughts across. That said, Fight Club uses voiceover throughout the entire film, but it uses so well that it, without it, it wouldn't it wouldn't really work. Um, the uh, Gone Girl is a, is a fine example. It's just a you know, give David Fincher anything, he'll do he'll do a good job on it. But then on the other flip side then, Girl on a Train, one of my all time favourite books, um from Paula Hawkins, made a brutal adaptation. It wasn't done with any kind of I, I felt it was rushed out there just to 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 um to kind of cash in on on the on the success of the novel and um, the location was moved from the UK to the US. And I and I know this is my me breaking my own and say, Well it's not the same story, you know, you can't but there's absolutely no reason why that film couldn't have been set in London, where where where, where the book was set, um, and it was moved to New York and um, New York New York State, um, and the story just I don't think the quality of the story of the book was so good and the and the the, the details that, that were in the book that the film ended up just being really confusing, um, because it was a case of trying to get as much in there and then pulling back and putting more in there and then putting by the end of the film film going. I actually read the book three times. I know the story and I'm still confused by the film. And if you're curious about the references to Gone Girl and Girl on a Train, go listen to episode 20 of this show on Domestic Noir. I'm just thinking about recent ones even. I actually saw one recently. Um, I had read um, Jojo Moy's Me Before You um, a good few years ago, four or five years ago, and it was a huge like multi multi-million bestseller worldwide you know an international bestseller and Jojo Moyes she's she's incredible she's you know she writes really really good emotional dramas um and the movie just didn't work for me um I found the book hugely compelling and very emotional and um it really got me and I just it left me cold on the big screen so I think that it doesn't always translate but then one of my favorite childhood books was Lord of the Rings and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, the movie adaptation was incredible. You know what I mean? It really was faithful to the books and the execution. It it felt like to me that they had really captured how I visualized all of the characters and what they looked like. You probably have your own list and there's certainly no shortage of online lists of the best and worst adaptations. What's clear though, is that it's not an easy process. Not every book or film or TV show can or should be adapted. So, if you're agonizing over which is better, the book or the film, remember that there's obviously one thing which is far superior to both. The podcast about this whole issue. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect, and that's it for Season 2. I'm finishing up here for the summer and coming back in the autumn with Season 3. Thank you so much for listening, especially if you've been with me since the start. And don't forget, if you'd like to help me make Season 3, you can head over to my Patreon page, where you can pledge a small amount and pick up some nice rewards too. It's at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash w-t-t-e. And there are links on my website too. If you want to go all transmedia, there are complimentary articles to the podcast on the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. Or you can tweet at me about the topic. I'm at C-E-D-Read, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Or tell me about your own favourite adaptations on Facebook or Instagram, where you can find the show as well. And while unfortunately this podcast is not being made into a major Hollywood blockbuster yet, there is going to be a live show, I can now officially confirm. It's on Friday the 28th of September, and it's going to be a double bill with the amazing Radiotopia podcast The Illusionist, 
which is insane. I'm really excited. I love The Illusionist. If you don't know it, go and listen to it now. It's so good. And then come and see Helen Zaltzman and me live. Tickets will be on sale very soon, and I'll put links on the website once they are. It's all part of the Dublin Podcast Festival, and you can check out the full lineup at dublinpodcastfestival.ie. Special thanks this week to my two guests, Paul Fitzsimons and Carmel Harrington. I've put links to their websites and their books on the WTTE website as well, so you can check out Burning Matches or Cold Feet the Lost Years or any of their work. And if you're really interested in the whole adaptation process, Paul also runs screenwriting courses and has offered listeners an extremely generous 75% discount on the course. Details and links and the offer code are on the website too. Music this week was by Paddy Mulcahy and there are links to his great music on the site too. And finally, if you're missing the show over the summer and you want to listen to another podcast, which is quite similar in a lot of ways to this one, I would highly recommend Ministry of Ideas. It is, as they describe it themselves, a small show about the big ideas that shape our world. And it's about lots of things, really. They did a great episode on World's Fairs, and the most recent one was on the history of nothing, as in zero. And it turns out nothing is quite complicated. And any show that encompasses Rick and Morty and Buddhist philosophy in the same episode is a good one in my book. You can have a listen on all the usual podcast places and at ministryofideas.org. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Keep an eye on social media and the website or sign up to the newsletter to keep up to date with all the news. And I'll see you very soon for season three. Oh, and don't forget the podcast awards vote, podcastawards.com. Thanks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.